Good morning, everybody. A very warm welcome to you. And um, Alice prayed a little bit earlier for the preaching workshop next Saturday morning. We would indeed covet your prayers for that. We're hoping for at least 50 uh, men to be here, and uh, it's going to be a great occasion. The workshop will be taught by the Reverend Mike Neville, uh, who is the pastor, the vicar of St. Simon's Church in London. Uh, don't worry, they haven't named a church after me, it's another Simon. But I mention that because Mike is a good friend and he's going to be preaching here for us next Sunday morning from the letter of 1 Peter. So that's a treat and uh, do please come and bring your friends. But in the meantime, uh, can I ask you please to keep your Bible open at this very important passage and also to keep the bulletin, the white bulletin, open in front of you which has got an outline showing where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and your heart. So we pray now for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it, and for wills that put it into practice. And we ask it for the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well, I think it's true to say that uh, we're always fascinated by the future. Uh, There's hardly a day goes by when we don't hear a report about what the future will bring. And many of these reports uh, are full of doom and gloom. Uh, They tell us, don't they, that day zero is now unavoidable? Are you ready? They tell us that the economy is on the edge of the abyss. Uh, Economic Armageddon is just round the corner. Are you ready? Uh, Many of these reports seem to have a particular fascination with our bodies. Uh, They tell us that our food and exercise choices are storing up illness and sickness for us in later life. Now, of course, the problem with that is that all the so-called experts have different opinions. And so it's sometimes the case that yesterday's health hazard becomes tomorrow's superfood. Um, According to one newspaper that I read this week, insects have now made their way into the top 20 superfoods. Now, only a few years ago, that would have been unthinkable. But, of course, we're not experts, and so it's very difficult, isn't it, for us to know what is true and what is not. So I think it's with great relief that we can think about the bigger future, the future of our world and the future of our lives, in the context of this teaching of Jesus in this part of Luke's Gospel. And right at the very heart of the passage this morning, in verse 33, Jesus reminds us that though heaven and earth will pass away, and there's no way round that, my words, he says, will never pass away. 
I want to say to us this morning that's a tremendous encouragement to us because it means that whenever we give our minds to studying the Word of God, whenever we give our time and our energy to trying to understand the Bible, we are actually investing in eternity. If you think about it, so much of what we do is actually very short term. That doesn't mean it's not important. It might be, it might not be. But Jesus is saying that if you spend time understanding my words and living by them, it will yield eternal dividends in your life. And in our passage this morning, we find, I think, teaching about the future that everybody, Christian or not, needs to hear. Now, in our recent studies, uh, we've seen that during the, uh, for the first few days of the week that began on Palm Sunday, teaching was right at the very heart of what Jesus was doing. And we find that again at the, at the very end of the chapter that was read for us a moment ago. Verse 37, chapter 21, Luke says, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. Verse 38, And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Now the temple where Jesus was teaching was one of the most beautiful and most impressive buildings in the ancient world. And at the beginning of our passage in verse 5, you'll notice that the disciples can't help admiring it. Uh, It was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. The first century historian Josephus says that the exterior was completely covered with gold plates so that whenever the sun shone on it, the glare was so intense you couldn't actually look at it. More recently, um, archaeologists have excavated stone blocks that were used in the construction of the temple. And these blocks are measuring up to 42 feet in length and weighing over a million pounds. Think of that. So yes, this was a seriously impressive building. But it also represented the Jewish religious establishment and everything that was opposed to the work of Jesus Christ. No doubt the disciples had never seen anything like it before. There weren't buildings like this in Galilee. And so to them it must have seemed so very permanent, so unshakable. But while uh, the disciples are cooing about how marvellous it is, Jesus says to them in verse 6, Don't be deceived. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. If you were with us last year, you'll remember that in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi predicted that the Lord would suddenly come to his temple in judgment. Well, here he is. And now he pronounces the destruction of this unshakable building. He says, not one stone will be left on another. And it's not hard for us, is it, to imagine the disciples' astonishment. Verse 7, Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? We can hardly believe it. And what will be the sign 
that they're about to take place. So, they ask two questions there, but you'll notice in the rest of the passage that Jesus only answers one of them. He doesn't answer the question, when will these things happen? Not because he didn't know, but because he didn't want his disciples to know. Jesus could have said, it's going to happen in the year 70 AD, which it did. But he didn't. Why? Well, because he wanted them to be alert. He wanted them to be ready for it at all times, so that they would be able to cope with the pressures that Jesus knew they were going to have to deal with in the years ahead. And in exactly the same way, the Bible um, tells us that Jesus is coming back, but it doesn't actually put a date on it. In fact, it says that if somebody does try and put a date on it, the only thing you can be certain of is that they've got it wrong. And that, you see, is because Jesus is far more interested in you and I being ready. He wants us to read the signs so that we're ready for what will be the most important day in human experience. That is the concern of Jesus Christ in this passage, and so it's our concern this morning. Just two headings. First, we're going to look at the shape of the future, and second, we're going to think about our personal preparation. So firstly then, the shape of the future. Now, in order to understand this passage correctly, you need to know that Jesus here is teaching about two different events. One of them concerns the fall of Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed, and as I said a moment ago, that happened in the year 70 AD. And in a very real sense, it was the end of an age. And in Jesus' teaching, that historical event becomes a sign pointing to the second event, which is not just the end of an age, but the end of all the ages, the end of human history, when Jesus Christ will return to judge this rebellious world. Now, I think it's quite likely that the disciples were putting these two events together in their thinking and making them one. Um, as devout Jews, they'd been expecting the Messiah. And Jewish thought at the time said, when Messiah comes, he's going to wind up human history, he's going to bring in his eternal kingdom, and everything's going to be different. But Jesus, you see, is warning them to separate those two events, the coming of Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. They're different and uh, they mustn't expect him to return too soon. That's what you see Jesus is driving at in verse 8. Just put your nose on verse 8, will you? <clears throat> Watch out, he says, that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, 
but the end will not come right away. So there's a list of things there that will happen before the end, but they are not signs of the immediacy of the end, because the end will not come right away. In fact, we're deliberately warned not to be deceived by them. And as we look back in 2018 on more than 2,000 years of church history, we can see that what Jesus says here was absolutely spot on. There have been plenty of false messiahs. There have been countless prophets who've said, the time is near. But they've all been wrong, and Jesus warns us not to follow them. So Christ's disciples are to be discerning, not fearful. The end will not come right away. Then in verse 10, uh, Jesus um, gives us a new section of teaching. Then he said to them, now that's Luke's way of saying, here is an important new section. And in verse 10, all the way through to verse 24, Jesus says that there are certain events that are going to happen that will lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So in verse 10, Jesus says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now friends, all of that was fulfilled in the first century precisely as Jesus promised. Between the death of Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem, which was a period of about 35 years, there were various uprisings and different Messiah figures trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. They all failed, they all lost their lives. Then, in AD 61, there was a huge earthquake in Asia Minor, which did a colossal amount of damage, and it was reported throughout the Roman Empire. In AD 63, Vesuvius erupted, devastating the city of Pompeii, and there were earthquakes and pestilences in various places. In the reigns of the emperors Nero and Claudius, there were famines. Uh, we read about one of them in the book of Acts, and that's because the Roman Empire was going through tremendous economic upheaval at that time, famine was widespread. Then in AD 66, the Jewish rebellion began that led to the destruction of Jerusalem four years later. And uh, Josephus, very interestingly, he tells us that there was a comet over the city of Jerusalem every night in the form of a sword, as he describes it. Fearful events and great signs from heaven. <clears throat> Josephus also tells us that while the Romans were besieging the city, the vast gate of the temple opened all by itself. It was actually made of bronze and it normally took 20 men to move it, but on this occasion it opened all by itself. And immediately before the Romans finally broke through the walls of the city, 
um, the city was packed with pilgrims who had gathered there for the Passover festival. And so when the Romans did break through, the massacre, the slaughter, was immense. Now, all of those things were foretold by Jesus in verse 11. It actually happened. It led up to the total destruction of the city in which he was speaking. Now, verse um, 12, all the way through to verse 19, tells us what it's going to be like for the disciples of Christ before that sequence of events. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But let's keep the time sequence in our minds first. Because in verse 20, Jesus gives his disciples a much more specific sign. Just notice this. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Now that, says Jesus, is the main sign, the siege of the city. And in AD 66, the first Roman force marched against the rebel city. The city didn't actually fall until AD 70, but it was besieged with increasing force and severity until it was finally overthrown. And friends, it's a matter of historical record that when that happened, the Christians living in the city really did say, this is the Lord's sign, we'd better get out. Because you'll notice Jesus said in verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. So when they saw the city surrounded, the Christians said, aha, the Lord told us about this. And they actually fled from the city across the Jordan to a town called Pella in the Decapolis. And there the Jerusalem Christians stayed throughout the siege and until the destruction of Jerusalem. Now that's very interesting because, you see, they followed the word of God. And you never go wrong if you do what Christ tells you to do. They took it literally because Jesus was talking about a literal event. And the Christians knew that this wasn't just the might of Rome gathered against a rebel city because Jesus said in verse 22... For this is the time of punishment, that is to say, God's judgment in fulfilment of all that has been written. You see, the city that had rejected the prophets and stoned them, the city that had crucified the Messiah, the city that even after the resurrection continued to reject the Lord's message and to persecute his followers, ultimately, that city had to fall. There was actually no way out. Jesus goes on to predict the distress in verses 23 and 24, and history proved him right. For five months, uh, Titus, who was the son of the emperor Vespasian, besieged the city. 
Josephus tells us that when they did break through, over a million people perished and a hundred thousand people were taken prisoner. The slaughter was appalling. Now some have said, well maybe those numbers are slightly exaggerated, but the experts say that the normal population of Jerusalem in those days was around 600,000 and at that time it was crowded with pilgrims who'd gathered for Passover. So the number could easily have been around a million. In any event, it was the most terrible, terrible judgment. And yet the Christians, following the word of the Lord, had already left the city. So verse 24 was fulfilled exactly. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now friends, that is exactly what's happened. The Romans, the Saracens, the Persians, the Franks, the Turks and even the British have all had their day in Jerusalem. Gentiles have been trampling on the city for centuries. And although today we now have the state of Israel and Jerusalem is still there, to this day the Gentiles are trampling on the city. Because on the site of the temple where Jesus was talking in Luke chapter 21, there is now a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock. And so even today, the site of the temple is not in the hands of the Jewish people. It happened precisely as Jesus said. Now friends, if that is so, then we should know that the events of verses 25 to 28 are equally certain. When will those events happen? Well, in verse 24, Jesus says that those judgments on Jerusalem would continue until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What an interesting phrase. What does he mean? He means that there's going to be a time when the Gentile world is going to be open to the grace and the gospel of God. And during that time, Jerusalem will be trampled on. But a day will come when the time of the Gentiles is complete. When the Gentile nations have had their opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus and the forgiveness that is only available through him. And Jesus is saying that when that time is complete and only God knows when that will be, then in verse 25 there will be the, the signs of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25 Signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. 
So he's saying there's going to be cosmic disturbances in the heavens with immense upheavals on earth, presumably with storms and tidal waves causing fear and great confusion. And there will be overwhelming apprehension, verse 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear of what is coming on the earth. For even the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So what is coming on the world? Well, Jesus tells us three different ways. Verse 27, the Son of Man is coming. Verse 28, your redemption is coming. Verse 31, the kingdom of God is coming. When you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now those things are obviously the same, aren't they? It's all one event. The Son of Man brings your redemption and the kingdom of God in its completeness. Now the fact that Jesus here uses that title for himself, the Son of Man, is pointing us to the fulfilment of a really important Old Testament prophecy. Regulars here probably know it, but for the benefit of any newcomers, we need to get it firmly anchored in our minds. So please keep a finger in Luke and turn back to Daniel 7 on page 622. Daniel chapter 7, page 622. Now what's happening here is that Daniel is receiving a vision from God about the ultimate realities of the world and about its future and about God coming in judgment upon it. And as this vision comes to a close, in verse 13 we read these words. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Now that, of course, is the Old Testament background to the title that Jesus gives himself. It doesn't just mean a human being. It's far more than that. It's about a divine being who is man but more than man. So, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you see, the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven is the sovereign ruler of all the earth. Every nation has to worship him. Every individual has to acknowledge his authority. And uh, his dominion is not for a few years only. It's forever. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed All authority and glory and power is given to him 
by Almighty God. And Jesus, you see, in Luke 21 is saying that that will be fulfilled when I come back in the total authority the Father has given me. So come back to Luke 21. Because, you see, Jesus is saying that the coming of the Son of Man with power is something that you Christians are to rejoice in because it means that your redemption is drawing near and it will bring you into a deeper and more wonderful experience of the kingdom of God than you've ever known before. But please will you notice in the passage that this event produces two different reactions. Look at verse 26. When Jesus comes in glory, there will be those who abase themselves in terror because they see too late that Jesus really is the ruler of the world. But in verse 28, we're told that there will be others who when they see the signs in the sun, moon and stars, lift up their heads and they rejoice because they know that the one who is coming is their saviour, their lord and their king. So for one category of people it will be a day of judgement and destruction. For another category of people it will be a day of redemption and salvation and rejoicing. And Jesus says that as the leaves on the fig tree are a pledge of summer, that's verse 30, so you are to read the signs. You are to be ready for the king because these things will certainly and definitely happen. And when they do, the king is right outside the door. And so you see, brothers and sisters, the question is, are we ready? Nobody knows when this is going to happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Jesus will never pass away. These things will happen. We will all stand before the Son of Man. Do you see that at the end of verse 36? Now, will you be able to stand before Jesus Christ on that day? Or will you be face down in the dust, crying for mercy? You see, at the end of the day, there are only two categories of people in the world. Those who will be condemned on that day, and those who will enter the kingdom of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. There are those who will meet Jesus as judge and there are those who will welcome Jesus as saviour. And the outcome on that day is decided by our relationship to him today. It is no good hoping that it will be alright then because it won't. When the Romans besieged Jerusalem it was already too late. 
and it's the same for us. This is the day of salvation. This is the day that things must be put right. This is the day that we can call on Christ as Saviour and know for sure that on that day we will receive full redemption. So with that in mind, we must consider the big question that runs all the way through the passage and we'll consider it very much more briefly under the heading, Our Personal Preparation. You see, I think the great question here is how can I know that I will be ready to stand before the Son of Man or whether I'll be condemned and consumed by his righteousness? Well, according to this passage, knowing for sure is a matter of two things. First, it says that those who will be ready to meet him are characterised by perseverance in spite of persecution. Let me bring you back uh, for just a moment to verses 12 to 19. Now you remember I said that these are verses warning the disciples about what they would experience before the fall of Jerusalem. So look at verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Now, you only have to read the first half of the book of Acts to see that all of that actually happened. The disciples were arrested, they were imprisoned, they were beaten up. James, the brother of John, was executed by Herod. Peter was martyred by Nero. Paul was always being dragged before governors and judges and who knows what. And of course, in the end, he too was executed for his faith. Now, what did Jesus have to say about that in verse 13? He said, this will result in your being witnesses to them. Now this is very interesting because the word witness of course is the word martyr in Greek, isn't it? You scholars at the back, is that right? It is right, isn't it? And that you see is because the martyr is a witness to Christ. How does he witness to Christ? By the fact that he perseveres in his faith in spite of of persecution. Now I know that our situation today is not exactly the same as theirs. Um, I realise that for some of you persecution looks similar. Uh, in some situations that you know about and I don't, it's violent and life-threatening. But I think for many of us these days persecution is infinitely more subtle. It is, isn't it, the political correctness that insist that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, we're told, aren't we, constantly, that all faiths and all beliefs are equally val valid and uh, they must be tolerated. And I find it very interesting that the apparently tolerant people that say that become surprisingly intolerant if we disagree with them. But my dear friends, the Christian cannot agree with them. Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus did not say, I am one way among several equally valid alternatives that the Father is perfectly happy with. He is the only way. There isn't another one. Now friends, that is what Christians believe. And that's why you see verse 17 is as true for us today as it was for the disciples then. All men, says Jesus, will hate you because of me. That means that in every generation, to be a real Christian is neither easy nor comfortable. But notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Please look at verse 19 very carefully. Jesus says, By standing firm, you will gain life. You see, it's the standing firm under pressure that proves that our faith is real and makes us effective witnesses for Christ. So that is why the first sign that we're ready to meet Jesus is perseverance in spite of persecution. And the second sign in verses 34 to 36 is watchfulness in spite of delay. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. So how do I know that I'm ready to meet Christ? Well, because my life has been changed. And uh, there are two dangers that Jesus talks about in that verse. One is the carelessness of uncontrolled self-indulgence. That's what Jesus means by dissipation and drunkenness. He means living for me, 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 and what I want. On the other hand, there is the opposite danger of the anxieties of life. And I think the idea there is, is the idea of being almost too careful. It's being so worried about the pressures and the cares of this world that we actually forget that there is an eternal world beyond. So whether you are dissipated or over-anxious, you lose sight of the eternal perspective. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus says, if you like that, well, you're a bit like an animal who can't see beyond the end of his nose and falls into the trap it hasn't actually noticed. And Jesus says, that's what my coming will be like for those of you who have lost sight of the far horizon. Because, verse 35, his coming will come upon all those who live on the face of the earth. The temple will be swept away because people have been worshipping the building and its activities rather than the Lord. And that's how it's going to be with the world. Because people have been worshipping the world rather than the God who made it. And you see, friends, the mark of being ready 
is not that you admire the temple buildings, not that you approve of the religion that takes place in it, not that you enjoy Christian worship and coming to church and singing hymns, not even, actually, that you like hearing the Bible taught and you're greatly impressed by its message. The mark of being ready is that your life is changed by Jesus Christ now in this world and that you put him first, whatever the cost. And uh, if there is no change of life, well then, you and I will be utterly unprepared for the climactic event that will occur on earth when Christ returns. So what's the remedy? Verse 36. Be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. See, it's constant readiness through prayer. That's the remedy. And what are we to pray? Well, we are to ask God in these days, this morning, to deliver us from our just condemnation by forgiving our sins. And then he says, if we do that, we will escape the judgment that is going to happen on our world. And so instead of falling before Christ in shame and hearing his word of condemnation, I never knew you, we shall by God's grace be able to stand before him unashamed, unafraid. Now I want to ask each one of you this morning, are you ready to stand before the Son of Man? It's actually the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer. It's way more important than the realities of day zero or economic Armageddon or anything else. If Jesus Christ were to return this morning, how would you receive him? Would it be in fear and trembling because you know that the truth is you have not lived your life under his authority? Can I say to you that if that is you, it's not too late. It's not too late to come to him. It's not too late to ask for his forgiveness. But you do have to do it. Just notice this detail, will you? You know, the people came to hear Jesus in the temple, right at the end of the passage. They thought his teaching was brilliant. Uh, every morning they, they arrived early in order to bag the best seats. They wanted to hear what he had to say. What did they actually do with it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Within 48 hours, these very same people are going to be shouting, away with him, crucify him, we will not have this man rule over us. And 30 years later, that very impressive temple was blown down by God and everything that it stood for was utterly destroyed. And that's going to happen at the end of time. You see, it happened then 
and it's going to happen in the future. And either we leave church this morning saying, I do know him by his grace and I want other people to know him as well, or we leave and say, well, I'm not really interested in that and I actually don't want to know. Well, can I say this? On that day, none of us will be able to say that we never heard. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us in the dark. Thank you for your accurate and detailed prophecy that guided your people away from Jerusalem when judgment fell. Thank you that they followed your word. Make us like them, we pray. Good disciples that believe your word and act on it while we can. Thank you for the wonderful hope that lies before us because we trust you. We thank you that the day of the kingdom coming is one day nearer. And yet we also grieve that there is one day less for our loved ones to hear the message. Help us to live our lives this week in that sort of consciousness. Help us not to waste our lives on things that don't matter. Make us faithful stewards of your grace. And if we say that we are followers of the Son of Man, help us to share your gospel with people this week, wherever you send us. And so we pray that the day of your return might dominate our thinking and our lives so that on the day you come, none of us may be ashamed because the Son of Man is our Saviour and our Lord. And all these things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.